peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we get to our text today, I have a, what I feel is a relevant quote that I came across from one of my favorite theologians and pastors, and I'd like to share this with you as a kind of wedding of your appetite for what is to come. The quote is this, I have had a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. Politics or controversy or party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of lively piety into many of us. The immense importance of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior, found in Titus 2.10, and making it lovely and beautiful by our daily habits and tempers has been far too much overlooked. Worldly people sometimes complain with reason that religious persons, so-called, are not so amiable and unselfish and good-natured as others who make no profession of religion. Yet, sanctification, in its place and proportion, is quite as important as justification. Sound Protestant and evangelical doctrine, meaning salvation by grace through faith, is useless if it is not accompanied by a holy life. It is worse than useless. It does positive harm. It is despised by keen-sighted and shrewd men of the world as an unreal and hollow thing and brings religion into contempt. So said the great Reformed Anglican Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, and he was saying this about Christians in England and the UK in the 19th century in Victorian England. I wonder what his assessment today would be of the church in our world. Today, it might be easy to ignore someone like Ryle. He wasn't even a good Presbyterian after all. But I suggest that if we ignore Ryle, we're also going to ignore the text that John has for us today from 1 John. John will give us three conditional clauses in the text that tell us what should characterize the Christian life. John will ultimately wrap up these admonitions to holiness of life with his purpose and aim of saying, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In the text, we will be reminded today of how we should live as Christians. We will see what God truly thinks of sin and what God has done about sin. So let us take up the scriptures and read. Beginning in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, going all the way through the first two verses of chapter 2. You will recall we covered some of these verses in some detail the last time I was with you. There's still more riches to be unearthed here. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie 
and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let us pray. Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. For it is a word that brings conviction of sin, but also shows the glorious remedy in our advocate, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins. Lord, we thank you for this word. We pray that your spirit would attend to the preaching of the word and that my mouth would bring forth what you desire, and only that and nothing more. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In verse 5, we're reminded again, as we covered this in some detail a few weeks ago, we're reminded that there is not even a little bit of darkness in our God. We are reminded that he is light, and the quality of light that is being referenced here is primarily referring to God's holiness, his righteousness, in all that he is, all that he says, and all that he does. Despite what the world may say in its desire to cast a shadow on God and his character, particularly in our day, the Bible stands up and says, simply, God is light. After being reminded of God's glorious perfection in righteousness and holiness, God, through the Apostle John, gives us our first test, so to speak, of faith with the clause in verse 6 that begins, if we say. And then this is paired with verse 7 with the clause that begins, but if we walk. John is drawing a connection between our speech and our walk. Our speech and our walk must show forth the same thing. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we're walking in darkness, meaning continually and progressively living in sin, and our lives are characterized by sin rather than obedience and following Christ, then we are walking in darkness. And as the text says, we do not practice the truth. Those of you who 
study music or enjoy sports or, for that matter, anyone who pursues any discipline that requires practice, the repetition of something over and over to learn a skill until it is mastered. We're all familiar with this idea. John is saying here in verse 6 that if the speech of our life doesn't match the walk of our life, we're practicing deceit. We're learning it. We're making it part of who we are in darkness. Falsehood, not truth. We are liars, the text says. The idea of practicing deceit is not harmless. Think about it for a moment. For me, it's easy to think of an instrument. If I have a student who's practiced all week long and played a wrong note in a passage or a scale, their chances of playing the right note in a lesson, not going to happen. There's going to have to be a lot of reworking for that student to learn the proper way to play that scale or passage. It will take more practice to undo the mistake. Even so, in our lives, we are called to practice righteousness. If we make a practice of lying, the Bible says we're liars. Our confession of faith as Christians must match our walk, or we are guilty of falsehood. The Reformed Baptist preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, if the grace you have received does not help you keep the law, you have not received grace. If you claim to love Christ and yet are living an unholy life, walking in darkness, there's only one thing to say about you. You are a barefaced liar. That sounds harsh. It's really no different than what the text says today. How many times... Does John tell us that if our confession doesn't match our walk or if we claim to have no sin, that we are liars and the truth is not in us? If you claim Christ as your own, you will joy in pursuing a life of holiness. We are called not to a conversion, but to a life of discipleship and following him. And that should be our sheer joy this morning. As John puts this test to us, Think about what he's saying. Does your life this morning match your speech? I grew up in a time when everyone in my youth group had the WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do was the question you were supposed to ask yourself anytime you were confronted with sin or a potential question that was morally ambiguous. Everyone in my youth group had these. And I was all on board until a Reformed preacher said, it's not WWJD, it's WDJD. What did Jesus do? It took the emphasis off my obedience and reminded me that it's not about me. That Christ's sacrifice on the cross, what he did, is preeminent. But... I still think there is a place for us to ask, what would God have us do? What should we live like? And it is because of what Jesus has done that we should be asking these questions. How should we then live? And I'll say this again, just in passing, to emphasize this point. 
We need to do some soul searching this morning. If obedience to Christ is a real drag for us, it needs to be first and foremost in our lives. Remember the old hymn, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Or think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, it prospers. Notice the psalmist delights. Do we delight in the law of God? Is it our joy to pursue the commands of God this morning? Not for salvation, but because we are saved. Is it our joy to seek and follow him? To meditate day and night on that which is pleasing to him? How much does the world and its temptations rule our life? What's really important to us? Do we have just enough of Christ this morning to make us absolutely miserable in trying to keep his commandments? Or do we pursue him because there is no way to be happy except to trust him and to obey him? As Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Notice what comes next in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Does this seem odd to anyone this morning? If I were just anticipating what was coming next, I might say, we have fellowship with God, right? We're walking in his commands. The first thing the apostle should say is we have fellowship with God. And we certainly do have that in the text. But at this point, he says we have fellowship with one another. It's in the church that we have this kind of fellowship. Does God value our assembling together in the church? Not walking in the light has ramifications for what we do here? Yes, it does. If we walk in the light, it produces fellowship with one another. How important is that fellowship to you this morning, to me? I don't often like to tell stories, or at least lengthy ones, but I have a couple to illustrate the point. Um, over the last couple of decades, I've had students from China and have been frequently to the island of Taiwan. And I have observed Christians and talked to Christians in those situations. And I think we can learn something from how they fellowship this morning. So I'm going to take the time to tell a couple of stories so my student from mainland China that I'm thinking of right now is part of an underground house church movement in a major city. And they gather in homes in maybe six to ten people, maybe a dozen at most. They have to stagger their arrivals at the location of choice. And occasionally they have to grease the palms 
of government officials to look away. But even so, there are potential raids and harassment of worship services. These kinds of house church meetings, according to my student, go on all over the cities in China, in all kinds of places, as the saints of God go from house to house worshiping. And he told me he could not imagine what it would be like not to be able to gather and worship and not to be able to have the fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ. They're willing to suffer, possibly be imprisoned, or who knows what else, for fellowshipping. How important is the fellowshipping of the church for us? In my frequent travels to Taiwan, I've seen similar house churches. In this case, the restrictions are not there for the worship, but brothers and sisters from across the community gather in homes to worship God together, to hear the preaching and prayer, to celebrate the Lord's Supper in private homes. This is always followed by a love feast. Always. There's always food. And then you know what these saints do? They go to another house and they spend this Sunday in fellowship and food, praying together, sharing the scriptures, sharing their lives together. Now, this utopian almost Sunday that I'm describing to you, I'm sure doesn't exist every single week, but I have observed that their love for Christ in these situations overflows to absolute love and care for their brothers and sisters. What matters to these people is a matter of life and death almost, is the fellowshipping together. And it doesn't matter if they're doctors, teachers, homemakers, whatever. They gather together. And I would venture to say for most of them, this is the most important part of their week. And following Christ is paramount. I know that's true for many of you here this morning. I'm not attempting to shame anybody here. But I see that and I look at that and I say, wow. We here sometimes in the West take for advantage or take advantage of the fact we can worship freely. And we don't take every opportunity to joy, enjoy the fellowship with one another as often as we could. Fellowshipping with the saints is one of God's means of grace to us our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I encourage you this morning to think about where fellowship is in your life. Look now at the last part of verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin is also connected with confession in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, right walking or walking in the light is not perfection. It is making use of the provision of God that he has provided in Christ. It is trusting in that cleansing blood for our sins. It is walking in a life of repentance. Let me say this again. Walking in the light is not perfection but it is trusting in the cleansing blood of Christ and walking in repentance. Notice in verse 8 that John begins the second of three 
propositions. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is here to remind us that none of us is sinless. Remember, this letter is written to Christians. So, yes, those outside the church need forgiveness and repentance. Those of us inside the church also need to seek that forgiveness that comes through repentance. In the original setting, John was dealing with early forms of Gnosticism and people that were claiming some sort of spiritual experience that they had achieved a higher plane and a higher life. Today we might see that in those that might claim a second blessing or they've achieved something beyond the normal Christian life that they have ascended to a higher plane. I saw this quite frequently growing up amongst Pentecostal holiness churches and assemblies of God. There are some that believe in this second blessing. We also see this in some strands, strands excuse me, of Methodism, this kind of Christian perfectionism that John Wesley himself taught. But the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John says to us, says to believers and unbelievers alike, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you're a believer or an unbeliever and you claim sinlessness, our text says you are deceived and there is no truth in you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is the faithful one who will keep his promises and do what he says. He is faithful and just. He is the truly righteous one who can forgive our sins and cleanse us. Don't run and try to hide your sins from God, but continually seek forgiveness through confession of your sins. John does not let up the pressure, but in case we missed it, in verse 10, he reiterates with some additional degree of force, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. At this point, John breaks in with pastoral concerns and addresses the flock as my little children. The elder apostle, presumably the last living apostle writing late in the first century, writes with care to his little children. He desires us to know the truth and what is best. He goes on to say, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John, writing to Christian, does not want us to sin. That's his main purpose. These warnings, as harsh as they may be to our modern ears, are for our good so that we understand the seriousness of sin, so that we turn from sin to Christ. John cares for his little children. He cares for us. He wants us to be free from the power of sin. John understands how awful sin is and God's hatred of sin. Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death. In speaking to God's covenant people, Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
sin distorts our walk with Christ this morning. Psalm 5-4 reminds us, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. We must stop playing with sin. Whether we think it is the big stuff or the small stuff, all sin brings a breaking of fellowship with God and with one another. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We lose blessing. We are driven to death and anguish ultimately. John is warning us because he desires something better. He's writing so that we might be protected, that we might not take sin lightly, and that we would walk in a manner worthy of the call, as Paul would say in Ephesians, the call on our lives as Christians, as disciples. So what are we to do? Are we to just try harder? Do we just get busy with this Christian life? First, if you're walking in sin, take it seriously and recognize it, but then confess Christ, confess your sin to him. In chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, we're reminded, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, the solution for sin in the unbeliever and the believer alike is the same. Confession, it is the gospel of grace by faith found only in Jesus Christ. John reminds us here of two extraordinary things, that Jesus Christ, the only truly righteous man that ever lived, is our advocate and our propitiation, or the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is our advocate. The Greek text uses the word parakleton. It's found also in John's gospel when he refers to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, the one who is the counselor, the legal advisor, the helper. To be honest, the most helpful thing I found about trying to get into this word is what is Jesus advocating for? What does that look like? I turned actually to Luther's translation in the German Bible. So here's your German lesson for the day. This word advocate, Luther translates as the German word Vorsprecher. In German, the verb to speak is sprechen. One who speaks is a sprecher. When you add the V-O-R, which is pronounced for, before sprechen, it means to speak for or on behalf of. Jesus is the forsprecher. He, he is the one who speaks for us, speaks on behalf of us. This is referring to a judicial kind of speaking Jesus is defending us. This is his intercessory work that is going on at the present, that has been going on ever since the ascension. If we confess our sins, Jesus speaks for us and pleads our case. But who is he speaking for and to? He's an advocate with the Father. Why? Does Jesus advocate for us to the Father? Sin, that's why. Remember, God hates and abominates sin. 
at a base level, sin is rebellion against God. It is not just, oh, I'm going to ignore God on this little command. It is seen as cosmic treason. Outside of Christ and left to ourselves, the Bible says that we are objects of wrath, fit for destruction. It is Jesus who advocates, who speaks for us to God, to the Father. He says, this is my child. I died for this one. I gave my life for this one. This one is sealed by the Spirit unto the day of salvation. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father doing his intercessory work on our behalf. Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is not physically on a table this morning. He's not being turned into bread and wine. He is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. If Jesus had never ascended to the right hand of the Father as our advocate, we would be lost. That ascension into heaven and his intercessory work on our behalf is part of this great salvation. Hebrews 7.25 reminds us, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And that is good news. Jesus does not forgive, forget those whom the Father has given him. He forgives sin if we confess that sin. The other word here I want us to notice this morning is the word propitiation. Hilasmos in Greek. This word propitiation is something we've lost in our English language. Propitiation basically means that God's wrath has been turned away, satisfied, propitiated. Jerry Bridges, in his excellent book, The Gospel for Real Life, gets the idea of propitiation across by saying this. It's a word that forcefully captures the essence of Jesus' work. That word is propitiation and is characterized by another English word, exhausted. Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. It was not merely deflected and prevented from reaching us. It was exhausted. Jesus bore the full unmitigated brunt of it. God's wrath against sin was unleashed in all its fury on his beloved son. He held nothing back. The only thing that could turn away the wrath of God for sin and away from those who practice sin was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, the righteous one, as our text says, is that sacrifice that bears the wrath of God and turns it to favor for us. R.C. Sproul, many of you know, wrote a book entitled Saved from What? One of the first things he did in the book was to simply suggest that the title of the book should have actually been Saved from Whom? We're not saved by Christ primarily to escape hell or the devil, per se, but we are saved from the wrath 
almighty God against sin. We don't often like to think about things like that, but that's what was happening on the cross for us, that Jesus Christ offered himself up as a lamb without blemish, the perfect sacrifice for sin that satisfies the wrath of God. What did that sacrifice look like? It was not just the God-man, Jesus Christ, dying a physical death. But he experienced the full wrath of God for our sin. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 say this about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's what propitiation looks like. It is God the Father pouring out his wrath for sin on his only begotten son because he loved us. God's wrath for sin and our rebellion is no small thing. God did not just say, I'll let bygones be bygones. Go on with your life, I forgive you. God acted according to his perfect plan, which he made before the foundation of the world, and Jesus offered himself up as an atoning, propitiating sacrifice. There's more to this story that I want to bring in. There's a metaphor that we find in both the Old and New Testament of a cup, a cup of God's wrath. We can read about it in a number of places. Psalm 75, 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Whatever is figured in that cup in the wrath of God was what made Jesus sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and to petition his Father that if there is another way, let this cup pass from me. But ultimately, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father and became the propitiation for our sins. Jesus submits to the Father and drinks that cup of wrath to the dregs. What's pictured in that cup is the unmitigated wrath of an omnipotent, omniscient God against all sin. When Jesus is bearing the sin of his people and drinking the cup on the cross, he cries out with the words from Psalm 19, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what God's wrath looks like. That's what his love for you and me looks like. We sing about the Lord's propitiation often here in the church, and I hope the next time we sing Christ alone that you'll remember these words and think about that propitiation. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied 
For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Today the trouble is, why is God so wrathful? There was a denomination, which shall not be named, that petitioned the Gettys about that particular hymn and asked that the line, the wrath of God was satisfied if they could change that to the love of God. Because they didn't want wrath in their hymn books. That's the world we live in. If we are ever to understand the love of God, we must understand that our sin is such an offense to a perfect God that it took nothing short of the death of his son. If you ever doubt that love of God for you, look to the son, yes, the son who died for you, but look to the father. Look to the father who planned before the foundation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to save a people. God the Father gave his Son a present, gave his Son a people, and the Son fulfilled his mission to rescue that people. And the Holy Spirit regenerates, brings new life, and seals us to that day of salvation. Our salvation was Trinitarian. Every part of our salvation comes from our one God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In closing this morning, I want to address three groups of people. First, if you're in Christ this morning, if you're a Christian and you're walking in the light, light you may have sinned, but you confess that sin. You're not perfect, but you desire Christ, and that is the center of your existence, and you desire to walk in the light. light. Remember that you are being transformed by Christ, that he is at work in your life as you submit to him and seek to follow him in trust, in obedience. Be reminded of God's love for you so that you might not sin. And if you do sin, Remember, we have an advocate, one who has propitiated the wrath of God. Secondly, if you're a Christian this morning and your walk does not match your talk, repent, turn to Christ and seek his forgiveness. Do not turn away. Christ still forgives sinners who come to him. Thirdly, even here this morning, it is possible that someone does not know Christ. I want to remind you this morning of that cup, that cup of God's wrath. Someone has to drink it. And Jesus drank it to the dregs for you. But if he does not drink it on behalf of you as your Savior, John We'll describe later in the book of Revelation 14 this. Unless Christ drinks the cup, you will drink a cup as described as the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and you will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
I can't even imagine what that is like this morning. But we have a choice. Either Christ drinks that cup for us or we get to drink it ourselves. Today can be the day of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but run to the one who drank the cup for you. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Come to Christ in repentance and faith. Come to the Father who gave the Son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's good news this morning. That's the best good news that anybody could have, that our sins are forgiven and the wrath of God is no more. That we are sons and daughters adopted into his family. That's the gospel. So Christians, walk in the light. Follow after Christ your Savior. And those of you outside of Christ this morning, Pray, think on these words. There is a cup, and Christ will drink it, or has drunk it for you, or you get to drink it yourself.